What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate. This is your host, Mortada El Fadl. Every week, we pick a Kate Blanchett film and we talk about it with a guest. We're changing things a little bit since Kate Blanchett is now on TV. So we are going to be talking about her new Hulu miniseries, Mrs. America. And my guest today is writer and filmmaker, Taylor Montague. Hi, Taylor. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I feel so blessed. <laughs> I'm very excited to have you to talk about the series. I think there is a lot to talk about. So this is a little bit of a change for Sundays with Kate. If you're joining us for the first time because you're interested in Mrs. America, welcome. We love that you're here, that you're listening to us. It's going to be a great conversation. If you're a longtime listener who has listened to our other 20 episodes, which were all about Kate Blanchett films, this is a little bit of a change. We're not reviewing and talking about just one film. We're going to review in this episode the first three episodes of Mrs. America. We'll have a little bit of more time than we usually do, so we will dig in. The one thing that I just want to bring to everyone's attention is that we will not be fact-checking. We know some stuff about the 70s. We know some stuff about the ERA. We know some stuff about the people involved, like Phyllis Schlafly or Shirley Chisholm or Gloria Steinem, but we're not historians. We read We read up. Both Taylor and I have read up, right? <laughs> yeah, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> we read up, but we're not going to be fact-checking. We're not historians. That's not our expertise. You will find that somewhere else. But let's dig in about Mrs. America. I guess Mrs. America is Phyllis Schlafly, um, which is funny because Phyllis Schlafly is someone like I started reading about only recently to know who she is, but then you read about her and she's been somebody who has been influential. I love what Kate herself said about her in an interview is like, depending on who you talk to, she is either Joan of Arc or the Antichrist. That's true. I like that. I also like that Kate is like, I'm going to play someone where there's no middle ground. Either people hate them or they love them. Yes, she goes in. Mrs. America is the story of the Equal Rights Amendments, the, what is we're going to refer to as the ERA. So the ERA was this ratification into the Constitution about equal rights for women that was introduced in 1971 by a group of women who were basically the second wave feminists who came together, introduced this, and it was going to be, and everybody supported it. Even Richard Nixon, who was president at the time, one of the worst presidents we've ever had. Everybody was in support of it. And then Phyllis Schlafly appeared and decided that, guess what? You're not going to ratify this. And unfortunately, she was successful and it wasn't ratified. And it's because as the show is trying to tell us, she took this on, not because she was interested in in rights for homemakers or whatever it is she told us just to get more power. That was what she was interested in. That's what she wanted to get. She wanted to be, as Hamilton says, in the room where it happens. And the only way 
she could do that is by talking about women and taking the stand against liberal women, or as she calls them, the libbers. <laughs> <laughs> that kills me every time they do that. It's so funny. Every time she says the libbers, I like, I feel so scared. <laughs> and it's also because in a way, the libbers is much nicer than what, you know, conservatives call liberals now, like libtard. So Taylor, tell me first, we saw the first three episodes, which is what available. And we will try to talk only about the first three episodes. And we'll try to talk about them first, second and third. But we're going to be spoiling big time. So if you haven't watched all three episodes, put us on pause, watch those episodes come back because we're going to spoil. But Taylor, tell me first, what did you think of just general impression on the first three episodes? Did you like them? Were you entertained? I also have to acknowledge my biases. I love a period piece. I love the 70s. So yeah, the first episode was a little rough for me. (laughs) Not in a bad way. I understand that they were like setting her up. Obviously, once we kind of got these other figures... In episode two and three, I was like, oh, okay, I'm in. I see where we're kind of going with this. But it really does set up uh, Schlafly, hope I say her name right, as a kind of like antagonist for the whole show. Yes. In a, in a really good way. I think there's these really like little nuanced moments where we kind of understand how she's become to be, you know, her villain origin story in some sense. And, you know, portraying her as a villain is too easy, but I think the show does kind of give space for these nuances, right? She's essentially a failed physician who has to wear a bikini at, you know, at these conventions and stuff. And like James Marsden's character, um, I have to look up his name. I apologize. But, um, I think his name is Crane. Yeah. He like has his hands on a small of her back and all this other stuff. You know what I mean? And there is this kind of unwillingness on her part to play the game mm-hmm. to be a, a woman politician in a very typical sense, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I guess the ERA becomes like this thing she can kind of set her sights on to have some kind of success in that arena. The the setup of the show is that every episode is about one of these historical figures. So the first episode, let's start talking about that. The first episode goes to what you were just talking about, which is it is about Phyllis. So it's about Phyllis Schlafly. And that's how we're introduced to her. I mean, that first scene is actually flabbergasting. Kate Blanchett is a huge big movie star doing her her first major TV role in her career. So of course she gets the star treatment is that usually a star is introduced by people talking about them first, about the (laughs) character, and then the character appears. And that's what happens here. But what I loved about this show is that it was very quick. It was really two minor characters saying, where is Phyllis? And she's like, there she is. And that's all the talk we need. And then she comes out in a two-piece swimsuit. <laughs> she does. She looks great. But it's also, it just tells you to what you were talking about. Like, even a woman in her status. She's a very privileged woman. She's a rich woman. She has a lot of power. And she's somebody who, at that point, was one of, was an author, because she authored a book with Senator Goldwater in 1964. He was the candidate for president. And that book is kind of what, where she got most of her power from, because that book, you know, this is me reading up on her. That is the book that sort of, that got her into all of these conservative circles. And that's where she got all her power. But still, she has to go out and be introduced as Mrs. J. Fred Schlafly, in a two-piece swimsuit. But I also think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out on the show, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's been this conversation about white conservative women kind of being portrayed as victims of patriarchy, which they are. Mm-hmm. Very little representation of how they kind of support or play a hand in their own demise in that sense, yeah. right? How they don't realize 
that or they do realize and they just like certain privileges that come with upholding conservatism. It's important for me as a viewer. I mean, I, I didn't do this, but it's important not to fall into the trappings of like Phyllis's victim in these instances. But I think they should be read as kind of like moments where it's like she just had to do that. And she's still trying to ratify this amendment. Yeah, I agree completely. I don't. And this is one of the things that I've liked about the show so far. I think you were absolutely on the money there, Taylor, because the first episode seems to be saying to me that Phyllis, as a woman, suffered from a lot of misogyny. That seems to be the thesis of that first episode, like from the from that introduction first. And then the first scene where she goes to talk to Phil Crane on his TV show, the character played by James Martin, and he's antagonizing her. He's very touchy feely asking her to practice smiling, which this is one of my favorite Kate moments when after he says, you need to practice smiling, she's like, I got it. She, like Phyllis, as portrayed by Davi Waller, the creator of this show, in this first episode is completely dealing with misogyny, but does she know that she is, or it's just she's used to it and she doesn't even notice it? But I think that she she's expressing some uncomfortability, right? And I think uh, I love how Kate plays everything in her mouth, right? Like the her kind of discontent is all from here down, like from her from her nose down, right? And so these kind of like moments where she's like, even when she's like sitting on the couch and we kind of see her in between all these men, right, in this group setting, and she has to get up and go get the pen from the secretary, yeah. She goes, thanks, Ms. Schlafly. And she goes, Mrs., I'm married, right? It's like trying to cling to that little bit of privilege and, and, and proximity to manhood that she thinks makes her different than the other women dealing with this misogyny. Mm-hmm. It's not any different. And I think she has some sense of that, especially when her husband is like, or she asks her husband, oh, you didn't think I was going to win. And he doesn't really say anything. So she has some self-awareness. But I think she's also wanting her own political gains and self-interest is willing to turn a blind eye to it. Yeah. And try to lean into these moments in which she is the only woman in the room as kind of false proximity to power as a woman. Yeah. And I'm glad you wrote up the scene with Goldwater because that's the, to me, that was the key scene in that first episode. So that scene, you know, Phyllis is in, in Washington. She is going there to talk to the senator about the Soviets and SALT and about not signing any agreement, about making Nixon not sign any agreement, any nuclear agreement. And in the meeting, she gets there and I, and immediately they bring up the ERA because here is a woman, we're all men, let's bring up the ERA, which is what was happening at the time. And immediately Phyllis starts the scene by saying, oh, I've never been discriminated against. And to me, I love that because the writing in that scene is so sharp in that the scene starts by her saying that, and then the scene becomes all about her being discriminated against for being a woman, from the fact that they compliment her pink dress that she's wearing, which she calls Dusty Rose, to then <laughs> asking her to take notes because she will have the best penmanship among them, which is another saying like, oh, you're a woman. So to me, this is where the writing becomes sharp and where this show sprang to life to me in that scene. And this is the scene also where Phyllis realizes, and obviously this is not what, how it happened, I'm sure, but I love how they did it here because this is the scene where you see, oh, they will only take me seriously if I talk about women issues. And 
immediately on the dime she realizes this she turns it on and immediately she forgets all about nixon and salt and nuclear and soviet and the era becomes her issue yeah and it's funny because now that i'm thinking about it further right even talking about the instances of like misogyny phyllis is encountering i mean she's essentially by crane become a lamb to the slaughter amongst these like men in washington like he he kind of coerces her, you know, come, come visit me, come stay, let's get a drink, go to this bar, da, 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 da. let's go to the center, do mm-hmm. this. And it becomes this kind of like, you know, oh, I have no interest in her, her political career. I just want to be aligned with her around her in some way. And she, in, the, in, in a weird way, uses the ERA to kind of regain her power and that she doesn't have to dwell in those spaces as, you know, Goldwater's, you know, co-author any longer and now she's this person with this power and this say what needs to be said and um it's really interesting yeah. it is and the, it, and the way it's portrayed in the series is also really interesting just a lot of the like camera work and the acting is like Mwah. it's just it's really Kate is amazing doing her bang bang she is giving it to us she <laughs> Absolutely. I love the wig. I love all of it. My favorite part of the scene is watching her is when she realizes, oh, they're asking me to take notes. And then she gets up and the power dynamic, the only person she can lord her power over in that scene is the assistant. And so she immediately, and you look at her body language, completely changes. She's so accommodating with the man. And the minute she's with another woman in that scene, she realizes, oh, you're a woman. I can lord my power over you. And her body language completely changes. And this is what I love about the performance. She shows you, she acts with her body to show us that, oh, this is this is when Phyllis realizes, oh, I can only get my power over other women. Yeah, which is kind of ugly. Yes, very <laughs> ugly. I think also sets the tone for like the rest of the the show. When period pieces are done, I'm constantly thinking about how much of that is from the perspective of having been past that moment of history mm-hmm. versus now, which yeah. is, when we get into it, really interesting to me talking about the way race will play out on the show. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about Shirley. Oh, who's my favorite Shirley. character so far. <laughs> I love Shirley. But I was also even thinking like Gloria Steinem's uh, mm-hmm. Black Friend. Yeah. There's this kind of, when we get into talking about episode two, right? But there's this kind of like, Gloria has been dealing with people in the press speaking poorly about her. Mm-hmm. But her Black boyfriend never comes up. Yeah, And that to me seems like an easy pot shot in 1972. Oh, absolutely. That was news to me. I never knew Gloria Steinem had a black boyfriend. Hold that thought. Let's finish talking about episode one, which is about Phyllis. I have a couple of things I want to talk about. They're trying really hard to show us that Phyllis was a feminist Mm -hmm. and not realizing, was discriminated against and not realizing she was. Because we talked about the scene with Goldwater and all the men at the Capitol, but also even her husband doesn't listen to her, doesn't think she's smart or it was going to win and actually forces himself on her to have sex. So a lot of what is happening is the show is telling us two things. Phyllis thinks she's not discriminated against, but in fact, everybody in her circle, all the men in her circle are discriminating against her, abusing her at all time. And this is where I think 
the show differs from something like Bombshell or something like Vice, where this show is telling us this woman is not that smart. This woman does not even realize what is happening to her. Speaking speaking of this woman is not that smart, and we'll get to this as we jump. I really do like the progression of kind of like the way they you see Phyllis try to cling to power in her own mm-hmm. circle, right? Stimuli around women who she thinks she's smarter than. Yeah. Typically, and as they start to come up with ideas, her way of kind of like policing those ideas. But yes, I thought that scene with her husband was a really interesting way of kind of touching upon not even just Phyllis, right? Who was this, like you said, middle class, upper middle class white woman who should have access to privileges or be protected from these like little microaggressions or things that she goes through. That not only is she vulnerable to them, but that they are um, kind of essentially her way of life, right? I mean, it's expected that a woman who is a homemaker or who is married should be ready to have sex whenever her husband expects her to. Even in that moment, her kind of own uncomfortability with the aspects of that role, which should put her on the side of the women that are kind of pro-ERA, it's not clicking. Not at all. I, I think they're tr- they're trying to, to do too much of showing us the misogyny around her. Um, and at the same time, not showing us in enough, so far anyway, of how she wields her, her power as this privileged white woman. Or if she's even aware of kind of, I, I've been looking a lot too, and I'm, I'm curious, again, I don't want to jump ahead, but her relationship with like the help. Mm, yeah. Let me say one thing about her relationship with the help. I think in the scene with her sister-in-law played by Jean Triplehorn, you would see that that woman, Eleanor Schlafly, treats the help better than Phyllis. Like she calls the maid by her name. She thanks her while Phyllis is being very dismissive. So there is a little bit of subtle thing there and you can see it in the performance of Kate. It's like she completely dismisses the maid in that scene. It's... It's a blink and you'll miss it, but it tells you a lot. So to your point, let's see if that will be explored more in the show or not. Yeah. And then even even talking about her sister-in-law, who's unmarried mm-hmm. in the way that she kind of completely dismisses that woman's feelings after we've seen her cry yeah. about the fact that she has not been married and doesn't have kids. And then that becomes a talking point at the mother-daughter luncheon later, mm-hmm. where, you know, these awful women who are unmarried, who have never had to deal with making a home, you know, are trying to take our rights away while her sister-in-law sits in the audience. It's really ugly. And I think that is a good moment in which because Phyllis Schlafly is so um, essentially put together, right? So her evil is not necessarily immediately recognizable, especially because we're seeing her in these very like vulnerable moments so that we can expose the kind of misogyny she was up against. Yeah, It puts front and center like, oh, this is not a good person. It allows for that moment where you're like, oh, she kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. Eleanor pours her heart out to her and cries and tells her how lonely she feels. And Phyllis is empathetic. In that scene, she holds her. She tells her, your life is full. She's like, my children think of you as more than an aunt. You're a mother to them. But when it comes to that scene where she wants to paint the second wave feminist as these harpy, single commie lesbians, she does not shy away from hurting this woman who means so much to her or should mean so much to her. Doesn't even realize she's hurting her. She just goes on. I think that's, that also speaks a lot to her character. And I, I think in 
knowing what I know about storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, might be a little foreshadowing about Phyllis's capacity to throw women under the bus for her own gain. And the person I thought would kind of be next in that sense, I can tell from the first episode, they're setting us up for Sarah Paulson. Mm-hmm. Um, especially also knowing her stature as an actress. I imagine she's not just going to be the sideman for the whole series, if that makes sense. But it seems like they're setting us up for her to kind of be eventually at odds with Phyllis or be kind of something's going to happen. Yeah. So Sarah Paulson plays a composite character. All of these women are real women, especially all the women on on the side opposite to Phyllis. But Sarah Paulson plays somebody called Alice McRae, who's a fictional character. She's a composite of women in Phyllis's circle. So she's her friend. She's the one who brings to her first the ERA. She's scared that the ERA is going to lead to her daughter being drafted and her not getting alimony if she gets divorced, which is all, you know, we can laugh about it. But it was a real concern for her. And Phyllis dismisses her at the beginning. She's not interested, but then she picks it up after she goes to Washington. But you're right. You're right on the money. I think Sarah Paulson's going to be the, maybe the conscious on the conservative side. I mean, and also like speaking to what you just said, like it also, you know, for me kind of brought back this point of like Phyllis is exploiting as trivial as it may seem is a real fear because this person is not well-read, right? This person is not um, in politics or in law and is looking to Phyllis, who is like, I'm a leader. I, I know law. I know the Constitution. I read these things. I'm well read and is exploiting that trust. Phyllis is a fascinating character, but She's she a work. <laughs> yeah, but she is a terrible person. The end scene to me of the first episode was very poignant because the end scene is the women of the ERA. After the ERA is passed in the house, they're celebrating. They're drinking champagne. The music is on. They're all happy. They're like, Hawaii ratified it 10 minutes after it passed in the house. And they dismiss Phyllis because somebody comes in and says to Bella Asbuck, the congresswoman from New York, who's played by Margot Martindale, I think it's her age. She comes in. She's like, you asked me to research the opposition. And she brings the Phyllis Schlafly report. And she's like, here's the opposition. Here's what I found. And they dismiss it immediately. There is a big joke about Phyllis Schlafly and they can't say her name. The Only the Republican woman played by Liz Banks actually knows there are two L's in the names. And they're like, oh, we don't care. We're never going to have to say her name again. And it's it was I almost steered up. It was very poignant because I know the ERA never passed and you're going to have to deal with Willis Schlafly. And I think that was like a great ending to that first episode. Yeah, when they pour like the I like the close up shot where they pour the, the liquor in the glass and it hits the, the Phyllis Schlafly report and it murks up all the ink and everything like that. Cause she wouldn't, yeah, go on to be their biggest adversaries. And I think that's what's so interesting about, you know, even when we talk about from modern times, watching a show like this is kind of knowing the outcome, but still being along for the ride. This is something that I'm on the fence about, but the kind of portrayal of Phyllis's ambition in episode one is really interesting. You know, a woman at typewriter, the kind of sequence of her, you know, putting together all her little newsletters and typing out the women's names. And it's really interesting how they portray her ambition. For me, I'm always like, how do we toe the line between like knowing that the outcome of this ambition is at the expense of a great many deal people. And we'll see that probably as the series goes on. But I'm like, Phyllis is not a girl boss. (laughs) She's not 
trying to start humanitarian efforts or trying to, you know, create a startup here. Like she's really after some really awful, evil, you know, striking down certain legislation and upholding people who had really evil and awful legislation like Nixon. Yeah. 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 Phyllis. I mean, she is set up as the antagonist, but they have to humanize her in a way. And I'm still on the fence of did they do a good job or not? What I like about it is that that first episode told us she is short-sighted. She might not be as smart as she thinks she is. And she is cruel to everybody, even those who mean the most to her, which somebody who has that ambition, who's that power hungry, has to have these quality, you know, quote unquote qualities. So far, I'm intrigued by this portrayal. You are listening to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. We will return in a few seconds to discuss episodes two and three of Mrs. America, and later on to delve deeper into what we loved about Kate Blanchett's performance in the series and about the costumes. Don't miss out on earlier episodes where we discussed many of Blanchett's performances, from The Aviator to Blue Jasmine to Ocean's 8 and The Good German, available wherever you listen to podcasts or at sundayswithkate.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review. Episode two is Gloria, and this is about Gloria Steinem as the glamour girl of the women's movement. <laughs> and, you know, Kate Blanchett is the star of this show, so I guess it's in her contract. She has to, every episode has to start with her. So the show starts <laughs> with her, with her husband, after she made him in the first episode. She gives up her ambition of running for Congress because he didn't approve of that. But to get back at him, she moves her mom into their house. So the second episode starts with them moving her mom's boxes and they're talking about feminists and he's like feminists nobody likes them and she's like yeah they're no fun cut to glorious <laughs> glamorous glorious Tynum with her hair and her glasses at a party at the Guggenheim having the most fun ever I mean it's something that Phyllis will never have and I was her handsome boyfriend played by Jay Ellis from Insecure wow I was so Kind of surprised to see Jay Ellis. I was not expecting. <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> I never think of Gloria Steinem because you know I know her now. I don't right. think of her as the glamour girl. She is obviously very attractive woman even now when she's older, but you don't think of her as this glamour girl. So this completely undercut what I'm thinking about Gloria Steinem because I think of her as an activist, but here she's like glamorous. And she's having fun and she's a party at the Guggenheim. And there is a scene with Bella where basically Bella Asbeck tells her, you are where you are because you're pretty. And she's like, so it's just my pretty face. And Bella's like, no, you're tits and ass too. Yeah. <laughs> or even even later we see her editor being like, I gave Gloria her first byline because I thought she had really nice legs. Yes, from the male publisher of Miss Magazine. So even at Miss Magazine, there's you have to deal with misogyny. Even Gloria, at the height of her power, she just launched this magazine. Her male publisher tells her you only got it because you have great legs. Mm-hmm. What did you think about this portrayal of Gloria Steinem? Was it a surprise to you? I mean, I'm not sure if I'm necessarily surprised. My my kind of background on Gloria Steinem was that I remember she had some 
And again, we're not historians, but I remember she had written an expose about being a Playboy bunny, right? So I'd always kind of known that she had thrived or dwelt in these spaces in which she had to perform and use kind of her her looks and her body as a, a way of like making money or, you know, living, affording to live. And so I wasn't super surprised about that, but I was surprised about her her coming to power being a kind of point of contention amongst the other women in the movement, mm-hmm. particularly the white women. I know that black women and white women had, you know, in that clearly being set up for that in the show, had, mm-hmm. you know, issues amongst themselves around what women's, you know, what feminism looked like, what the women's mo- movement looked like, what were the priorities of black women versus white women. But I did not know that Gloria's place put her in opposition with like Betty Friedan, yeah. which maybe no, I feel like that's history, but... The show puts them at opposing sides. So Gloria is on the rise, basically, and Fridan is declining at the time. Everybody keeps yeah. telling her, you wrote your book 10 years ago, and nobody wants to listen to her. And also, maybe Gloria is a little bit more savvy. She knows she's pretty. She knows that gives her privilege. She knows all of that, and she uses it. And, and Betty Friedan is, you know, antagonizing McGovern and McGovern's people, and that sidelines her. And I mean, it, it's a writer's way of of telling us what is happening, right, by contrasting these two figures. Also, I love Tracy Ullman as Betty Friedan. Yes. And I like Friedan as a character. I like that she calls out Gloria. I think Gloria does need to be called out. I think she does need to, considering how she's acting in the context of the show, need someone to kind of check her and be like, I understand that you have these big political ambitions and I know that you want this on the floor, you want da 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 but like you can't allow yourself to be kind of, people are aligning themselves with you to let themselves off the hook for the way they treat women or to make themselves seem more progressive than they actually are. And I think actually that scene where she's in the Guggenheim and she's walking with Betty Asbuck um, and she's like, the guy stops her and goes, can I have a photo with you? And she's like, we're having, you know, Betty's like, we're having a private conversation and shoes the guy off. And Gloria's were like, that's my biggest advertiser. And she's like, no, if you want to win in politics, this is how you do things, right? Like the photo ops only go but so far. That's what I took from that moment. Yeah. That visibility doesn't necessarily mean power. It doesn't mean you can get these bills passed. So Gloria is portrayed, I agree with you, it's portrayed with a little bit of naivete at that moment. She doesn't know where the power comes from, which will play even more in the third episode. I think what was very moving to me about the second episode and where Gloria really shines is the abortion subplot. So Gloria is very adamant among the other women of the movement that they should force a vote in the 1972 Democratic Convention about abortion rights for women. And it becomes very personal. And this is a story that everybody knows that Gloria had an abortion when she was in her early 20s. And and the show shows that. And this that scene is taken right from Gloria Steinem's autobiography, that she was in England. She found some, she found a doctor who actually operated on her and she has been grateful to him all her life. And there is a lot of scenes in this episode where she talks about women being butchered on kitchen tables, trying to get this abortion vote. And I found it very moving. The, the most moving scene is when she meets this woman outside of Miss Magazine on the street. And the woman shows her the first issue of Miss where all of these women said, I've had one too. And this woman tells her of being crammed into a hotel room with many other women while having her abortion. And 
That was the most poignant, most beautiful scene in that whole episode. And this is where they make this very personal to Gloria and I'm assuming to all women. Yeah, and, and, and it can draw, it does draw parallels to our, our contemporary moment without feeling cheesy because it's so rooted in that time and shows us um, how far we have not come in some sense, which is, uh, I think, a, a contemporary conversation about how far the second wave feminism go. So seeing that in tandem with them trying to politically strategize, which I think so much of episode two was setting us up for, um, for the future of the show, trying to politically strategize amongst themselves and sometimes, you know, fighting amongst themselves to make sure they're making the right decisions for the greater good of quote unquote women has its caps, has its limitations. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a very good scene. And, and what did you think of Rose Byrne as Gloria Steinem? I have to say, at the beginning, I was like, why is she whispering? Why is she so <laughs> low-key? But then I read on Gloria, and apparently it's spot on. That's how Gloria Steinem talks. So she's apparently doing a great, great spot on Gloria Steinem. <laughs> what do you oh, think yeah. of the performance? I, I really like the performance. I love the wig. So I'm all about the costumes, baby. I love this wig with the little tease, the little bump in the back, with the glasses. I'm so into it. The little vest and everything. I really like it. And yeah, I was like, her voice is like, is this how she talks? But I also think that it, it works so well with like her character. And like she's like, I don't know politics. I don't know uh, the particulars of this, that, and third. I just know I really care about this thing. And I'm willing to put my face and do press conferences and speak if that'll get us from point A to point B. So it's, it's really interesting. I was going to say, I feel like she's being set up as kind of a sacrificial lamb. Tell me more about that. You know, especially when you talk about like her, the way she speaks, isn't very confrontational, isn't, you know, as Brooke says to her, I have to yell because I'm not pretty, right? I want to be her. And Gloria doesn't have to do those things, right? She can speak in a way that's like this, you know, people take her at her word. But also seeing after Free Dan says that she's not a leader and then seeing Free Dan on the plane and kind of deferring to her, never quite standing up um there's even a line about her like being neutral trying to play the middle i think it kind of is exposing her as kind of either one she's going to be kind of sacrificial to the women's movement because she hasn't taken a hard stance on anything Mm -hmm. or that she isn't a strong political leader although i don't think she was ever really out to be a political leader to be fair to her but you know the show is portraying history as it happens more or less. And yeah, I think we're, they're kind of setting her up to show that like maybe her best qualities and what she could bring to the movement was her ability to be a spokeswoman and a salesman and a publisher and um, someone who could speak at public forums, but not necessarily this like political mastermind. And so when she's kind of nominated to be one, it feels like the beginning of a kind of slow descent in the political arena. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to find out because the next episode, she loses a big battle. So stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about Jay Ellis because Jay Ellis, are you a fan of Insecure? Yes. When I I was in college, I used to watch it a lot more consistently. Mm -hmm. I am a fan of Jay Ellis as an actor. I saw that movie that he was in, Escape Room, which I feel like only a handful of people saw. I saw it in the movie theaters. Oh, wow. Look at you. So I have to support my man. No, I'm just kidding. But yes, I do. I am a fan of his acting work. And I do think it's interesting when I was watching this, how um, he's kind of breaking out 
of being Lawrence from mm-hmm. Insecure, which is like kind of what he's known for. But I think it's interesting that he's doing so playing someone else's boyfriend. He, yeah. And I have to say, he has not shown his posterior on Mrs. America like he does in almost every episode of Insecure. So, Jay Ellis, you've got some explaining to do. <laughs> I'm so curious about him. Like, I, I want to know more about him. I don't want to look up information about the real guy because I don't, in a sense, don't want to spoil the future of the show. So I've been trying mm-hmm. to, like, pick and choose how I read up on certain historical aspects of the show yeah. because there's a lot I don't know which makes it more interesting for me to watch and I'll back check it later. But just like that little line where he's like, I can come over tonight, but I have to be with the kids first thing in the morning. Like, who is this man? Yeah. I mean, he has kids, but he asked her to marry him. So he must be single. Right. So I'm like, what's kind of going on? Is this like, for me, what where so much of Gloria's kind of characterization is that she kind of doesn't have a husband is sidestepping, you know, even Betty Friedan says, Oh, well, you know, she's a single woman. So it shows that you can have a successful life and not have been married, which feels like a very underhanded compliment, right? It's not much of a compliment. It's an underhanded compliment, but to me, that's what I know Gloria Steinem for. Like she is, she's always been single. Cause if she married this man and why is she dating this man, knowing that if she was to marry this man, she'd be thrown immediately into domesticity immediately. So it's like, where is this going? And one of the things that I loved about Rose Byrne's performance is in that scene where he proposes to her and you see on her face that she is telegraphing to us, oh, I'm never going to marry this man, even though I love him. Maybe this is a side conversation, but I love seeing supportive men. And I love, and we see this later with, you know, Shirley Chisholm's husband. But I love how she's anticipating George McGovern calling. And so they kind of make a deal that they can spend the night together, but it has to be in that room. And the moment that the phone rings, everything has to come to an end, you know, because she has business to handle. And he's totally okay with that. Or when she's in Miss Magazine, you know, on the late night, like typing up, click clack and getting that issue ready. And he brings takeout. And he's reading her mother's interview to make sure, like, you know, she hasn't said anything bad or if so, Gloria's aware of it. Or, like, he's like, Wonder Woman, cool. You know? And I just really, I think maybe that's built in so that you do kind of build some hope for them as a couple. But I love that. I don't feel like we always see, I feel like what we always get, and maybe that's why Chisholm and her husband are there to kind of counterbalance that that narrative. Um is that, you know, really powerful women cannot find men that love them because they have all these other priorities and concerns that come, you know, at the expense of their relationship, which is often built on patriarchy, right? Like the men are supposed to lead, the men are supposed to... And no, this very prominent feminist is loved and is in a loving relationship. With a hot jealous. <laughs> with a very gorgeous black man who's like... I will marry you. And if I can't do that, all right, well, I'll bring takeout to the office and we'll figure that out later. But like, I want to support you in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said about that. I think it's great. And it is one of the things that, you know, it builds this relationship between them and it makes it to what I was talking about earlier, like when they cut to Rose Byrne and it's her face that you see that she loves him, but she knows probably she can't marry him. Because of politics, which is unfortunate. So, which is also, again, another way to show us what the patriarchy does. Because if she was a man, she wouldn't think twice. 
Exactly. But it's, it, but it's interesting how the show does not address that he's black. Not at all. Yes. And so we are putting the show on notice about race. We, we talked a couple of things already. <laughs> Phyllis and the women who work in her home and now Gloria and her boyfriend. So, so far they, they've showed us black people, but they haven't addressed race. Shall we move to episode three and Shirley? Yes, because I think that that kind of brings race in a little bit. Yes, so episode three is titled Shirley and it's about Shirley Chisholm and her 1972 historic run for president. And it takes place in Miami at the Democratic Convention in the summer of 72. At the point where the episode starts, she has gotten less than 1% of the delegates or very little of the delegates. I'm not sure of the exact number, but very little. But she is adamant that she wants to go to the convention and try to get more delegates. She doesn't want to concede because that's where she would get more power and influence what's happening. I like that, that that's the sort of thesis of the episode is where does the power come from? Shirley is very clear about where her power comes from. And that puts her in opposition to Bella Asbug and even to Gloria. Yeah, which is really interesting because Shirley probably has the most political experience out of all of them, but is constantly being made to defer, or they want her to defer to their expertise. Mm-hmm. But with people, and I hope people use this show as a way of kind of, because so much of Shirley Chisholm's legacy is that she ran for president as a black woman in 1972, right? But also a big part of her legacy is that she fought really hard for reform, black people, women, uh, poor people, and where all those identities intersect, through welfare reform as a congresswoman, or you know, voting on certain bills that would allow for certain public you know programs for people who need governmental assistance right i'm not a politician but um, that is her legacy yes right and so what i really liked is that when she's like this is the power if i have my delegates i can wield the power to say mcgovern no you have to have welfare on your platform yes you know and so she really is running for the greater good of the people not just so they can imagine a future in which she could be president but they can imagine a future with people like her and the community she comes from get a say in legislation and that seems to kind of be going over except for like flo kennedy who nisi nash as flo kennedy is like perfect casting i love it she's Um, so delicious as flo kennedy yes i love it so much (laughs) it's like she that seems to be going over their heads because they are so sucked into like we need to be on the government side we cannot mess up her political allyship but at the cost or the expense of this black woman yeah what it shows us is that white feminists basically stiff chisholm and asbuck and steinem go behind her back and make a deal with mcgovern and mcgovern's people that completely undercuts her and then she is backed into a corner and she just has to concede while she's been trying to tell them and tell uh, the guy from the black caucus and tell her husband and tell everybody who would listen that the only way you can affect real change is if you have power once you concede your power then you can't affect any change and people just take advantage of you and i love that that was the cc's of this episode Mm -hmm. You only get power by holding on to power, which 
Phyllis understands. Right, and that's what they seemingly lack understanding of. Even for me to kind of trust this white man over this black woman, right? Because that's essentially what it comes down to, right? They trust McGovern. They trust his, his people, his advisors, whoever talking to them, they're cutting deals with. They trust him more because he seemingly has more power, more access for being a white, you know, the white male candidate that keeps coming up in the episode, only to ultimately shoot themselves in the foot by ignoring that the, the, the counsel and the advice of a black woman who has been in the trenches for years, which to me really echoes the kind of sentiment during the last election when people were coming out and were like, oh, black women were right. Yeah. But the damage has been done. Yeah. And also speaks to the lack of power, lack of power black women have or had at that time. And that, you know, every black woman in America could have voted for Shirley Chisholm and it wouldn't have been enough. Right. And so the idea of democracy amongst black people is not the same as it is amongst white women who align themselves with the power of white men to get what they want, whereas black women don't have that privilege or capability. And I think this episode really kind of exposes that. And Shirley Chisholm has to prove herself twice as a black person and as a woman. I thought it was interesting her, uh, the role of surveillance in this episode. Um, I know. I always think the FBI is listening to me all the time. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> they're tuned in right now. Like, we need to watch this show. <laughs> yeah, they're totally listening. For me, you know, COINTELPRO was a really, it was a real thing um, with a lot of black political groups mm-hmm. in the 70s. And still, we saw it with Black Lives Matter, right? Where essentially the FBI is listening in and planting people to undermine the political power and reach these people were gaining and undermine on the ground movements and stuff like that. Um, and so when Asbug is like, you know, she got the endorsement of the Black Panther Party, her her campaign is a joke. To me, that was so hurtful and showed that Asbug and these other white feminists had no clue. Yeah, what was happening on the ground or like the true ethos of the Black Panther Party, which was predominantly run, run by black women during its height and had, you know, free breakfast programs, right? I mean, they weren't these like militants, you know, I think that there's a dominant narrative at that time. And then there's what was actually happening. And I think that, you know, Chisholm was clued in. She knew, I need these people. They're doing what I, the free breakfast program, that's what I stand for as a candidate, as a congresswoman. And so it also shows me like white feminists inability to kind of educate themselves on what was going on in these other communities. And I think that their unwillingness to see beyond their own noses is what fucked them. This is kind of why I think this episode is the the strongest episode of the three so far is because it shows the fissures in all these movements, right? Like these women are supposed to be working together, but they can't help but undermine each other and undermine Shirley, you know, and then get undermined themselves by the white men in this case represented by McGovern. It just goes back to exactly what Phyllis has done in the first episode, which is like, she can only lord her power over those who are below her or have less power. Yeah, and it's funny too, because we also see in episode three how they kind of took their eyes off the ball with Schlafly, and that's when she starts really picking up momentum. Mm -hmm. So at this point, if we're going back to Phyllis, what she's doing is that she's going national. So the ERA started getting ratified. And uh, and in the second episode, the Shirley episode, what we missed about what Phyllis was up to is that she managed to defeat 
the ratification of the ERA in her home state of Illinois. And in this third episode, now she's going national. She is gathering all the women in her mailing list to St. Louis to meet in a hotel and organize and and try to defeat the ERA ratification. And they're in that scene. And this is where race comes again. And this is some of the women that she's working with who are, as she calls them, good organizers from Arizona, from Louisiana, from Texas, start using racially charged language saying that, you know, they're going to, they're going to integrate the sexes just like they integrated the races. And they're obviously opposed to that. And that doesn't sit well with the Sarah Paulson character. And she tells Phyllis about it and, and asks Phyllis to take a strong stand. She's like, expel them. She's like, but they're good organizers and they have, she's like, yes, and they're powerful. She's like, yes, all the more you have to do it now because then you show other people that they can't go there, which is the same thing that the show does this parallels, which, which is good. It makes for good drama. So this is the same thing that sort of Shirley was saying, you have to hold on to your power. You have to show the only way to gain power is to show that you have power. So Alice tells her that, but then Phyllis doesn't do that. So Phyllis actually puts Alice on the spot, makes her call out this woman, these women. And when these women get mad and they say, we're leaving, immediately seizes the opportunity and makes all these racist women head of her group in whatever state they are and gives Alice a little bit of a consolation prize. It's like, oh, I owe it all to Alice who brought this to me in the first. So she's manipulating everyone. And this is, it's a scene, it's, it's a callback to that scene in Goldwater where she sees things spiraling out of her control and she manipulates the situation to her benefit. I don't remember Phyllis ever saying what these women are saying is wrong. It became, and Alice doesn't either, either. it's a matter of language. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's just the language thing, yes. That's that's a very good distinction. Yes, it's not that they're wrong, it's that the language that they're using could put us in a position where we won't be taken seriously or will give the feminists something to poke holes in our argument about. And so it's strategy, it's not necessarily um, a lack of uh, racist thinking, per se. Yeah. Um, which I'm happy that the show makes that distinction, right? Because you know, they could have had this moment where it's all a lie. And even Alice says, you know, I, I don't agree with that. But there's never that moment. I'm really kind of happy about that. And I think it also expo- exposes the class issues within the Stop ERA movement, right? Because when the women get up from the table, they're like, you can keep your fancy dinners. And, you know, they're clearly not as, um, you know, well-to-do as Phyllis and the other housewives from Illinois, they're like, you can keep this shit because in Louisiana, you know, we're this way and we do things this way and we speak our minds and we're of a certain ilk and we don't need you. We can organize on our own. And so to save the kind of schism in, in the party, I guess you could say, you know, she then kind of, oh, well, you could be the leader and you could be, like you said, throwing Alice under the bus. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's really interesting um, how they're kind of like, let's pack the racism away for now because <laughs> we have <laughs> bigger fish to fry. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> because you know they, they really do feel I mean, and, and the show exposes that, right? We know Phyllis doesn't necessarily care for her yeah. the help. Um not at all. Never has expressed any sentimental value towards them. You know, we see it later on in at the end of episode three with the cans, the canned goods. 
Mm. Well, if you want to take them, you can take them. Very, you know. Yeah. Uh, dismissive. That she's and, and always she, dismissive. Yeah. Yeah, she is, and 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 her her maid, and also watches Shirley Chisholm on TV. That moment where you can see the kind of camaraderie and sense of self that she's coming into her own mm-hmm. and that she's kind of identifying that her issues as a woman is much different than um, Schlafly's or other kind of white feminist yeah. leaders. Yeah. I mean, the show does do this contrast, but I feel like I'm hoping that they will dig deeper into the race question because Phyllis does not get to the power that she gets in without being completely racist. Right. Of course. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, I, come on. Come on. Stop playing. Yeah. And also, I think Phyllis would have let, even though she does kind of rush, I think her name is like Mary Frances or something, off the podium when she's like, you know, this is like integration. I think that, you know, had Alice not kind of pushed her a little bit, I think she would have let it slide. I think she would have just let this woman say what she wanted to say, unless she's so manipulative that she kind of saw that three steps ahead and through you know, Alice under the bus. Um, yeah. But it's, it'll, it'll be interesting to to see kind of how Alice evolves during the, as we go on during the show. Yeah. Um, I like um, in episode three, two, that moment, the Harvard Law School moment. Oh yeah, where? <laughs> Tell us about that moment, set it up. Essentially, Phyllis has kind of been called out by two women who support the ERA on the floor about her lack of kind of education around congressional law, um, exploiting these women by making them believe these things, but it's it's all lies. And so she goes to talk to her husband later and she goes like, you know, you're not the only person who would have went to Harvard Law School. Like, you know, I went to school and I studied law and my professor thought I was so brilliant that I should apply. So like explain to me like legal procedure <laughs> or something. <laughs> and he's like, well, when you say things, you cannot just say anything that can be verified as false. For example, <laughs> if you got your master's in 1945 and then were meant to go to Harvard right after, that would be five years before, you know, Harvard Law School became co-ed. Yeah. And she kind of chuckles and she goes, well, they would have made an exception for me. That to me embodies exactly who Phyllis Schlafly is. And what the white women of her ilk are, they deem themselves exceptional and not like other women. And so therefore she lacks the ability, even with all she's gone through on the show, even with being, you know, her husband forcing himself upon her, um, with being made to be a joke a lot of the time in these settings with all men, Mm -hmm. feels that she is an exception. Yeah, she believes it. Absolutely. Before we move on, is there anything else about Shirley? Did you want to talk about Shirley's husband? I'm such a sucker for love and romance. Like, <laughs> I love them. I love when she has that moment. First of all, I love I love Uzo Aduba. I'm sorry, Uzo Aduba, for messing your name up. I love you. And I love her performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she gets the mannerisms down in a way. Yeah. The like the hand movements and hand gestures without going so far that she cheapens the performance. For example, like Shirley Chisholm very famously had a lisp. Mm. but she doesn't mimic that in any way. So she kind of brings her own kind of freshness to this portrayal of Shirley, which I really like. She's great. I loved her too. And and this is sort of, Rose Byrne looks so much like like Gloria Steinem, but Uzu doesn't look that much like Charlie Chisholm, but she gets her soul. It's, I love it. It's it's a great performance. Yeah, she really embodies kind of what made her Shirley Chisholm. And, And also kind of what made her so easy to root for 
Because of course at her time, someone thought it's preposterous that a black woman could be president. And she believes so firmly in that. And she kind of shows with every, you know, kind of actor's decision she makes, with every move she makes, that she believes she should hold the highest office in the land. So much of that comes in the body, you know, in the confidence Get that confidence on a group of people when speaking. And so when her husband, you know, she's explaining to her husband, like, they don't believe in me, right? Like, they, how could, how could they not? I'm the only person that really thinks that the president of the United States could be a black woman. And she kind of loses a little bit. And he's like, baby, I, I believe it too. Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. I'm just like, ah, that is so cute. And just like, not to diminish their love. I think it's cute, but you know what I mean. It's like, yeah. like the idea, and I've touched on this before, of a man standing by a very powerful woman and a woman who believes that she can do anything. She can hold the highest office in the land as a black woman. Yeah. And maybe that's because this show is written and directed by women. And maybe women can see that, mm-hmm. um, that that can happen because I'm sure it happens in real life. I love all of it. I love, Yeah. When she uh, thinks that she's being surveilled through the kind of like great hotel room and she moves it over and she goes, my name is Shirley Chisholm and I'm running for president of the United States. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she's speaking to whoever is on the other side and who's, who's surveilling her. Like, don't you forget it. And and I, my heart kind of broke for her when she ended up being right. Yes. And she had to concede. Yeah. I'm like, but she was right. Right. Like mm-hmm. when they all go to the, get to the floor and it's like they're going to vote on abortion and then suddenly that's not the case and it's mm-hmm. kind of the been pulled from underneath them yeah. and she talks to gloria and she's like i told you this would happen the abortion scene the abortion vote scene on the floor of the democratic national convention is maybe my favorite scene just from a directorial perspective so one of the things is that this show is directed by movie director so the first two episodes were directed by Anna Bolden and Ryan Fleck who directed Half Nelson and Captain Marvel and this third episode is directed by Ama Asante from Bell and the United Kingdom and one of the things that you know the show is is mostly interiors it's mostly about these characters interacting so obviously the actors are the interest here and the actors are the strongest suit of this show because they bring these characters to life. And I was looking for this show with this pedigree. I was waiting for a scene where this show rises above like the usual TV show and shows me like there is a director with a vision behind it. And I think that scene that we were just talking about at the Democratic National Convention, the abortion vote, that's where that popped to me because it's a huge scene, right? It's mm-hmm. a huge area. There, It's a huge crowd scene. There are so many characters in it and so many different priorities for the characters. And, and the camera moves really well to show us what happens in mm-hmm. a convention floor. And that's where I was like, oh, this show is better than your average TV show. I felt that way actually too during the, and this also speaks to what you're saying about like these big kind of uh, so much of the show is the one-to-one interaction mm-hmm. and big moments. Um, in episode two with the Guggenheim, I really like how that was directed. I really like how, you know, we're in this really big space and the director seemingly uses all of this space, right? We get the big overhead shot from above. We get the kind of, stairwell we get the you know one-to-one walking up we get the dancing on the dance floor which i really liked and also this is a very small scene but i really like when that black woman and her daughter 
mm-hmm. came to Miss Magazine, I imagined she was going to be working there or writing there because they're like trying to get her a desk and they showcase kind of the way children and daycare was integrated into the publication's um, offices, which yeah. aligns with their beliefs and views. And I wish I would have saw just a little bit more of that. Um, I wonder if they're also going to talk about Ms. Magazine as kind of um, a platform for Black women writers. Speaking of, of race, um, Alice Walker kind of famously wrote at the magazine and wrote her essay, I believe, about Zora Neale Hurston, rediscovering Zora Neale Hurston's canon in that magazine. I hope they do. Yeah, I do. It could be a cute little, you know, cameo or something. I don't know. You know, I'm not, I didn't write the show and I'm not the director, but it would just be a nice, like, you know, nudge at history. Taylor, this is Sundays with Kate, a Kate Blanchett podcast. So we have to talk about Kate's performance. And so tell me in these three episodes, we talked a little bit about some of her scenes, but is there a moment that we haven't talked about yet that you felt like, oh, I love this performance? I think I brought it up, but I think the Harvard Law moment is so strong. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the way she's like, they would have made an exception for me. It's like, the way it's said is that you know she believes it, but you also know in her heart of hearts, like she knows she doesn't deserve to believe something that absurd. Yeah, you know what I mean. She's not that smart or that excellent or that. You know what I'm saying? That they would have made an exception for her. I also think the moment when she is on the floor and she's walking up the steps, or she's in Washington rather, she's walking up the steps with her husband, and she's like, you know, making herself small again. Oh, no, no, you, you're the expert. It's, it's not me. You know what I mean? Or she has to boost his ego back up by being like, you're my secret weapon. When in reality, we know she doesn't really need him and has been doing nearly everything without yeah. his support. I'm- what I loved about the performance is all the little moments when Phyllis is thinking in those situations that we talked about, where she looks around and realizes what's happening and then turns, manipulates the situation to her benefit. And you can see Kate showing us what Phyllis is thinking. And those little moments just before she says something or just before she acts some way are um, what I liked about the performance. What I loved about the performance is that even though she's playing this woman and she is humanizing her and there is that actor's empathy that comes from portraying you know, a villain or whoever it is, even if you don't agree with them, there is that and you can see it, that she's definitely humanizing Schlafly. But also there is what you were talking about in that scene with her husband about Harvard. There's that sly commentary and where she drops it just a little bit to show us that this woman is maybe not that smart. This woman maybe is in a little bit over her head. This woman maybe does not see what, you should see. So there is a little bit of sly commentary from the actor on the character, which is what you don't get with most actors. I also like the moments in which you can see she's shaken up. doesn't really lose her confidence mm-hmm. here, but you can see kind of in her shoulders and her body language that she is, you know, in the moment when they're trying to figure out what they should be called. And she's like, we should be called the Schlafly Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's like, 
<laughs> a German Girl Scout troop. Yeah. And another woman in the group goes, well, like, we should vote on it. Right. Which, I mean, seems practical as a democracy. It's long. It's supposed to be a democracy, at least. Yeah. Right. If they're kind of echoing the sentiments of the patriotism that they uphold. Yeah. And she goes, well, if we vote, any little, you know, every little thing, it's going to be a problem because she wants to be the slack with egos. You know, like she's like, yeah. I want to be the authoritarian. And so she says with the utmost confidence, like, we shouldn't vote. You know, if we vote on everything, it's kind of futile. We're not going to make any progress. But mm-hmm. you could tell in her body language that she's kind of shaken up that these women who she's seemingly believed to have empowered are now using said power to challenge her and to challenge the way things should go. Um, and so that moment really, to me, also kind of sets the tone about the relationship that will exist amongst the women in the group. We kind of see um, Alice coming to power, coming to her sense of self a little bit more, where mm-hmm. she's like, oh, maybe I'm fun. Right. You know, Um, and ultimately, I think that'll that'll serve as a point of contention amongst the women. But I really like how Kate Blanchett is able to kind of use her body as a means of showcasing that she wants to kind of hold on to power and she wants to be the woman in charge. And she doesn't really care about their input, but she does them because when we see um, the congressmen say to her, you know, those women every week, they bring hundreds of women with them. And you, you have brought no one. Like, you have to bring these women here. And the way she uses the bread making, you know, the, her mm-hmm. speaking to your kind of favorite moments where we see her thinking, where she kind of has that eureka moment about, oh, if they bake bread and bring it on the floor, yeah, we'll, we'll get some traction. Which is so interesting because then that's later, yeah, Alice reads in a note that the uh, she gets a note from a supporter who's like, actually, I don't care what happens with this damn ERA thing. I just want banana bread next time. Yeah. This is where the experience of a powerful actor like Kate comes. She knows when to stop the action to show us a little bit more of the character and to show us an actor acting. I love actors when they're acting. I don't want subtle at all time. I need you sometimes to do a gesture, to telegraph things for me, because this is why I enjoy watching actors. And Kate is always someone who does that. So she serves us these things and she does that in all these moments that we were talking about. The other thing I wanted to ask you about are the costumes. So it's very funny when you do a show from the 1970s. I think it's a fun job for the costume designer because they have a lot of things to go to. But also it's such a fine line of doing customs that will work for us as a modern audience and will also be true to what people wore there. And one of the things that I love about the costume so far is that there is, so when she goes to Washington, she wears the pink suit with a dress, which is in contrast to what the feminists are wearing. And they even comment on it. So it's in the script. He's like, oh no, it's not pink. It's dusty rose. (laughs) And exactly. Phyllis would wear a pink dress with a jacket to show her power and to show her femininity. So those little things about the costumes is what I liked. What, what are some of the things you enjoyed or didn't enjoy about the costumes? What I love is that there's like two main things. One, I love when Phyllis is working out her business casual. Which says a lot about her kind of needing to be feminine at all moments, right? Yeah. Um, I love when she hands her skirt over to Sarah Paulson's character, to Alice, excuse me. I also love that looking at the clothing, it looks so well made, right? In contrast with the kind of fast fashion that we kind of wear, specifically of like Shirley Chisholm's outfits are so well tailored and so 
um, she just looks so comfortable and so fit in them. And I think that also speaks to, as someone who is like, I'm a black woman running for president, she has to be spiffy at all times. She has to look good. She has to look the part. And I really like that you could tell there was a consideration about tailoring. There was a consideration about how Shirley would look in contrast to someone like Gloria, who has a much more kind of freewheeling style of dress, wears pants a lot more often. So the women who are kind of constantly in the midst of the political sphere, you know, Chisholm and Schlafly, are constantly wearing skirts, dresses, very hyper-feminine outfits. Power outfits. Yeah, like power outfits, like business casual, like, you know, they're there to have meetings and, you know, they got their little jacket and then they take the jacket off, then they put it back on, you know, versus the women who are kind of trying to to get to political power don't dress that way and are very, they're not willing to compromise, which I also think speaks a lot about their kind of platforms and what they believe. And I, and I like that. And I like how the costuming comes in hand for the scene where the women in that ERA are walking up the staircase and the kind of feminist women are walking up the other side of the staircase to um, go to the congressional floor, I guess. And you see the complete difference in like hair, jeans, a lot of them are wearing jeans and pants versus like the, we have the close-up shots of all the like shoes that the housewives are wearing and they're like kitten heels and things like that. They're like not comfortable outfits at all. So I like how the costuming is like built into the story, like you said, in a way that to, to show things without being so heavy handed. You know, the costume designer is Bina Daigler, who actually started working with Pedro Almodovar. So she has a oh. long career and she's done a lot of movies, including Mulan, which was okay. the last thing she did before Mrs. America. But what I love also about the costume is that what Shirley Chisholm wore to the Democratic National Convention is not something that she can't do. She has to make the dress that Chisholm wore. But right. also you you get that, but also you get like in the other intimate moments that were not documented. You get like, yes, these other costumes, same with Phyllis, same with Gloria, same with all the characters. Yes, they would wear that thing. So there is a consistency from what is documented to what is more in the intimate moments. Also, there's like also like moments where I was like, oh, they were wearing that like in in Guggenheim scene when Asbuck is wearing a patent leather trench coat. Like, get it, girl. (laughs) See? And I love what she did with Flo Kennedy, too. Flo looks great. And Nisi is so funny in that in in that and looks great. Yes. The hats with the buttons on them. It feels so true, too. She's very true and honest to the historical figures and what they would have worn. Good job, Baina Daigler, on the costume so far. We love them. <laughs> <laughs> Davi Waller, who's the creator and writer of this show, is well known for being on the writing staff of Mad Men. So this is another show that was set in around the same time that where right. Mrs. America set. So did you feel that the show sort of transported us successfully to the early 70s? Yeah, I was actually going to say, if we are to bring up Mad Men, which I don't know if, if it's necessarily fair, but there is a connection. Mm-hmm. as like a prior period piece that also she has worked on, the world of Mad Men felt a little more organic. Because there were fictional characters and maybe she's a little Not- bit more constrained here? Yeah, like, you know, there are, listen, when you're dealing with historical figures, there's someone right now that is watching it and fact-checking every aspect of the show, which mm-hmm. is completely understandable. Um, and it's fair, you're dealing with people's real life stories. And for a lot of people, this is their entryway into these figures. 
But I also wonder too, if that's less to do with the writing or the costuming and more about how things are shot mm. for television is, you know, and, and, you know, you're seeing a very HD <laughs> version of the seventies, you know what I'm saying? So that's true. Yeah. It's like things are shot for TV. There's not much wiggle room for like, you know, putting filterings on it or making it look a certain way. I mean, it has to, and I wonder if that has a lot to do with it. I also think that when yeah. we see her out kind of Ms. Magazine offices, we know we're in the city because we see the carts and like the 60s, 70s stuff that's been set up. But mm-hmm. if that was in a wider shot of the street, we would immediately know that it's not the 70s. So I think they're, they're doing the best they can, probably with what they have. Yeah. And the show was shot in Toronto. So I don't know if the exteriors, maybe they went to those other cities, but most of it was shot in Toronto. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, Toronto always acts like a surrogate for New York when you don't have as much money as you sh- when you're not Scorsese. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the other, I thought the writing was a little bit on the nose sometimes in like, oh, look at this. I'll give you one example. So when Phyllis goes on the Phil Donahue show and she just opposes these things that are not facts, it, she just makes things up and she's like, they're going to, women are going to be in foxholes. And I felt that that was a little too on the nose is like, oh, this is exactly what Trump does on TV every time. And it doesn't make it wrong. Phyllis did that and Trump is doing that and they're playing from the, from the same playbook. But I wish it wasn't, it was just a little bit more subtle. Like, I think the audience is smart to, to recognize the parallels. You don't need to feed it to me as much as it's fed in in some of the scenes, a, a lot of the show is very smart about drawing the disparity in power between people or how people wield power. A, a lot of things it's very smart about, but I think sometimes it just is like, oh, you need to recognize this Murtada as the parallel to 2020. <laughs> right. No, yeah. And I also, I think that, I think that probably has to do with a lot of people feeling like the responsibility of an artist is to kind of make work that reflects the times. Yeah. Even when it's a period piece, um, especially because these things are so loud and in our face, the kind of lineage the Republicans have as kind of sounding the alarm and, and exploiting this kind of fear in people that the norm will be disrupted. Yeah, I do see that. I think I think a lot of shows do that, though. Yeah. So many shows do that. And I think maybe this show less so. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. A little less so. But then also because these things... I think there's also the line too, where like these things are so pervasive in our history that it's like, it's really hard to find the line where it's like, I want to include this thing, but I don't want it to be this heavy handed kind of commentary on where we are now. And I think for the most part throughout the three episodes, they do a good job of trying to toe that line. So yeah, because they can really take it overboard, but they don't. And I'm interested in this show. I enjoying it so far. I'm definitely want to watch more. I'm interested in to see a lot of what's going to happen. Uh, somebody we haven't talked about, and this is who I'm interested to see more of, is an actor I love, Melanie Linsky, who yes. plays um, Rose Thompson, the Illinois chapter head of the Stop ERA. So I'm excited to see her and and what she, that character is going to do. And you mentioned you're excited about Sarah Paulson, and, and we both want to see what they do is the race question is there anything else you're excited to see in the upcoming episodes i want to see more flo kennedy i just love nisi nash like i love nisi nash it's crazy so i really want to see how 
she is going to play a role. Because obviously, I mean, it seems like inevitably we're going to get to the schism between black women and white women in the movement. I think that's kind of probably what's being set up with like Shirley being stiffed. And so I want to see how she kind of navigates that, being such a prominent figure on both sides. And I wonder, is the show is the show going to go all the way up to... Is this just 1972? or I think the we- show ends with the election of Ronald Reagan. So they're going to go to 1980. Ooh. Ooh. Now I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now I'm really excited. That should be really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's okay. exciting. So definitely watch Mrs. America. We're going to be watching. And yes. we're going to be talking about it. Um, I wanted to ask you just a general question about Kate Blanchett, since this is a Kate Blanchett podcast. What is your favorite Kate Blanchett performance? The Aviator. Oh, as Catherine Hepburn. I love her in that performance. I think um, she's using everything. The, the walk, which is like swinging her arms. <laughs> golf club the, the the she's pulling her pants you know her costume yeah. you know the hair i mean everything every part of her is being used in that performance and it was also one of the first performances where i was like oh that's kate blanchett not just person you know it kind of for me put her in in, in my consciousness as an actress and an actress who was interesting and really good at her job and who i should check out um especially because like you know i'm i'm pretty young so like i didn't see her ascent yes yeah. You know, organically. So that was one of the like, oh, okay, that's who this person is. And like she's really good, you know? Yeah. She's great. And I'm thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. This was a joy. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And before we go, tell our listeners where they can find you and your work. Okay. Um my name is Taylor Montague. I am on Twitter. Uh, and Instagram with the same at name, which is basically my name with no vowels. So T-Y-L-R-M-N-T-G. And yeah, give me a holla, hit me up. And yeah, that's all. And you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says and follow the podcast on Instagram at Twitter at Sundays with Kate. And until next time, thank you for listening. And we will be back next week with the next episode of Mrs. America.